This passage tonight is uh, Luke 17, starting at verse 20, going to the end of uh, Luke 17. Um, If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. All right. Uh, And if you're reading from the Cornerstone Bible, it is on page 715. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, There he is, or here he is. Don't go running after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. The word of the Lord. All right. Uh, okay, remember last week how I, I entitled my sermon Bait and Switch Christianity, and I kind of used a bait and switch. Well, tonight I'm doing a bit of a bait and switch on all of you, right after I uh, preached on that, where we're going to look at the theme of the kingdom of God, but it's going to be more uh, a broad overview of the, what the Bible has to say instead of staying in Luke chapter 17. Uh, but it's a good place because Jesus talks about it right here. Before we jump in, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the kingdom of God. Help us understand it. It's a big topic. It's a big subject. Uh, we want to understand it so that we can understand you and we can worship you as our king and we can know you as our king and submit our lives to you as our king. Uh, We love you, Jesus. We love you, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I wanted to to start today with an icebreaker question. So icebreaker questions can be fun, a good way to start off an evening. Uh, And the question is this. If you could choose, who would you prefer to be in charge of your life? All right, so you can choose one of these uh, five options. Who would you like to be in charge of your life? Do you like yourself to be in charge? Myself. Now, many of you probably say, I, I am in charge. But do you really trust yourself? Like, how's life going? Are you doing a good job of being in charge of your life? You've, like, you've never made any mistakes or have any regrets? Do you really want to be in charge? How about a scientist? Maybe there's some of you who are like, okay, if I could give someone else the responsibility of being in charge of my life, I would give it to a scientist because they are, you know, analytical thinkers, they, they deal in data and facts, I can get behind that. Okay. How about a celebrity? Maybe some of you are like, I want to be successful. I want to be rich and I even want to be a little famous. So I'm going to get like a George Clooney or a, uh, or a Harrison Ford. Uh, uh, I'm going to get one of them to kind of lead my life. Okay. 
No, not a chance from Ben. Well, then you'll probably like this next one, a politician. Maybe some of you are like, I want to have influence. I want to make a difference in this world. Therefore, I'm going to choose a politician to be in charge of my life. Uh, And there's many people shaking their heads no, forgetting that, well, many politicians are actually in charge of many aspects of our lives. How about a king? You know, maybe some of you have just a passion for the dark ages, and you're like, oh, man, I really want to go back to the dark ages. I want a king to rule over my life. It seemed like the peasants had a great time back then. King is kind of an outdated idea, right? It's not the first thing we jump to. Man, I really want a king to rule my life. Just to give away kind of the punchline, Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king. And he talks all about the kingdom of God and the gospel of Luke. And in the the New Testament, it speaks all about the kingdom and the kingdom of God. In fact, in the gospel of Luke, uh, the kingdom of God or kingdom is used 39 times in the Gospel of Luke alone. So it's important to talk about this kingdom. Jesus comes. So we, we are going to look at our first verse there, verse, uh, verses 20 and 21. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So the Pharisees seem to think that they understand what the kingdom of God is. And they're actually pretty mistaken. They're pretty wrong in their understanding of what the kingdom of God is. Jesus, of course, he gets what the kingdom of God is. He understands it perfectly. If someone were to come up to you and say, can you explain to me, like, what is this kingdom of God? I'm seeing it in my Bible. Or maybe you're encountering it and you're like, what is this? How would you answer? How would you explain the kingdom of God? This is a topic that I've wrestled with, trying to understand this, this broad, broad subject, the kingdom of God in the Bible. What does it mean that the kingdom of God is coming or the kingdom of God is in your midst? We need to understand it so that we can understand the New Testament, so that we can understand the gospel of Luke. Well, today I'm going to give uh, the beginning of a kind of two-part sub-series in our gospel of Luke on the kingdom of God, answering this question, what is the kingdom of God. And we're going to go from the first book in the Bible to the last book in the Bible. And so let's go back to the beginning to learn about a king because I think ultimately we can have a king. We can have a king who rules our life and he is a good king and he is actually better than a politician. He's better than a celebrity. He's better than a scientist and he's definitely better than me or you. And he can be in charge. So let's find out more about this king and who this king reveals himself to be. And it begins back in Genesis chapter 1. God is king. Now, I've broken today's sermon into chapters. Sometimes I just do like point one, point two, point three. But the kingdom of God, you can break it up that way, is really a story. It's a story with chapters. And and I've broken it up into 12 chapters. So we're going to be here a really long time tonight. Now, this is why we're doing it in two weeks. We're going to go through weeks, uh, chapters 1 through 7 tonight, and then we'll finish off next week. But it's really a story that is building towards a consummation, towards uh, an ending, which is also a new 
beginning. And we'll get there, but it, it begins like any good story with a good opening line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, many of you are familiar with Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is the most interesting and fascinating uh, chapters in the Bible. Now, I don't believe that when Moses wrote Genesis chapter 1, he wrote it to, uh, to kind of give us a scientific explanation of the origin of the universe. I think he, this is a kind of a, a temple-building moment where God is building his cosmic temple, his cosmic throne, where he will reside. Genesis chapter 1 is the beginning of God's revelation of a kingdom. He is setting himself up to rule over the entire universe. And we see the organizing of his subjects, of his realms. In fact, he calls man and woman to rule with him. We're going to get that into a moment, but I wanted to point out Psalm 93. It talks about this this God, our God, who reigns, and you see this all throughout the, the Old Testament. Psalm 93, verses 1 through 2. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm, and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. So we have a king, we have a God. He establishes his throne. He rules over creation. God is king and yet he invites little K kings to come and rule with him. He invites vice regents to come and be a part of what he's doing. This is where you and I enter the story in chapter 2. People are called to rule. So God is king. People are called to rule. So God makes men and he makes women in his image. To be made in the image of something or someone means you will share some of their characteristics. You will be like them. Just had a son, Elijah. I can already tell that he's going to look more like Monica than me. <laughs> he's made in her image. He has like my ear, just like this section. So I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. But we're made in God's image. What does that mean? I want to quote us the verse, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. So that they may rule. The ESV translates this, so that they may have dominion. Who has dominion? Who rules? A king. A king does that. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God creates this beautiful world, this wonderful creation, this perfect creation. It's harmonious. It's beautiful. There's no sin. And nothing could go wrong, right? Nothing bad happens, especially when God's like, let me, let me put man and woman in this creation to Rule it. So we get, to, we get to Genesis chapter 3 and also chapter 3 of our story. The first rulers fall short. Adam and Eve lead us, lead all of the future subjects into sin, into brokenness. Maybe you've heard the story, the serpent comes to Eve, the snake, <coughs> this is Satan, this is Satan tempting Eve. 
And, and the, the snake comes to, to Eve and says, eat of the fruit, eat, eat of the fruit of this tree that, yes, God forbid, forbid you to eat from, but it's okay, you can eat from it. And Eve listens, and she eats. And that's an act of rebellion, an act of saying, I know better than you, God. That's an act of saying, I should rule over you, God, <clears throat> not the other way. Bob, can you grab me a glass of water? Thank you. So what happens is the kingdom of God in that moment, its presence is removed from our world. It's, it, Adam and Eve are, are, are going to be pushed out of the Garden of Eden where they experience God's presence, where they experience God's rule unhindered. And now they're going to rule but they're going to rule differently than they would have if they had been obeying God. Thank you. Appreciate it. <clears throat> I wanted to point out, I wanted to take a moment and bring this back to our modern context. That we're tempted the same way that Eve was tempted and that Adam was tempted. We're tempted to be the rulers of our life. We're tempted to say, I'm going to set up my throne in my kingdom, and I'm going to do things my way instead of the true king's way, instead of God's way. Uh, I wanted to, to share a story of, of, of someone who bought into this lie. I think this is a lie that a woman named Valerie bought into. She writes, between the ages of 17 and 22, my life spiraled out of control. Due to drugs, alcohol, and rebellion, I lost everything. Even though I tried everything the world had to offer, I still couldn't seem to fill the void in my life. My life was no longer fun and exciting. The feeling of depression took hold of my life, and I began to cut myself and play with death. This is what happens when we remove ourselves from God's kingdom, when we set up ourselves as the rulers of our lives. It begins to spiral out of control. Her story goes on. When all hope was lost, my family stepped in and brought me to Adult and Teen Challenge. Adult and Teen Challenge is a, a Christian recovery program, uh, and they're, they're in the area, and they're like a 12 to 18-month program where someone who has given their lives to addiction uh, can get it back through the true king. With a dramatic change, I let go and let God control my life. This process has taken a lot of discipline, strength, courage, and self-control. God has changed me from the inside out, and he will forever be the leader of my life. That's a beautiful story. So we're tempted to be the rulers of our own life, but it leads someplace that's not good. It leads actually into bondage when we bring ourselves out from under the rule of God. And this is because when we do this, we actually bring ourselves under the rule of another. See, there's no like middle ground. There's, there's no like space where I can be king because this serpent, this Satan, the Satan he's, he's an oppressive ruler. Look at one of the, some of the things that he has called in the Bible. He's called the prince of this world. He's called the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He is called the god of this age. See, there's, a, there's a, another prince who is trying to usurp the one true king. 
And when we are not under the true king's rule, we're under his rule. And he is an evil, oppressive tyrant who wants to destroy our lives. But there's good news because in Genesis chapter 3, God promises hope. He promises that he's going to curse and crush the serpent. Genesis 3.15 says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. This is the first good news. We learned about the good news in our video. Well, this is the first good news. And it's the announcement that Satan's head's going to be crushed. There's going to be another king. There's going to be another king who's going to come and defeat the serpent, the evil one. But the story takes a while to get there. Because as we begin to read Genesis 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, as we read further and further, people are just bad. <laughs> They're murdering each other. They're evil. People are so bad. It's not that they are under the rule of Satan, but they also embrace the rule of Satan. And that's what we do. It gets so bad that God sends a flood and he wipes every person off the face of the earth. Complete judgment except for Noah and his family. And then shortly after that, God begins to introduce hope through another family, the family of Abram. See, this is when we get to the next chapter. Chapter 4, God gathers a kingdom people. God gathers a kingdom people. God forms a relationship with a man known as Abram. We call him Abraham. God renames him at a point in this story. God says this to, Noah, to Abram. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is, a, this, this is the formation of a, of a kingdom people. The, the people that belong to the one true king the God who rules over all of creation. And it's through this group of people, Abram's the, the forefather of the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew people. It's through them that God is going to form a, a, a nation of priest kings, of priests and, and kings who are, who are to share the good news and to, to, to bring light back into the darkness all around the world. It's through Abraham that God is going to restore his kingdom. And I think in this we actually get an idea of what the kingdom of God is. First, the kingdom of God is a reign. It's God reestablishing his presence on earth. This doesn't mean that God somehow like disappeared or, or wasn't there, but it's God's gracious presence, his loving presence, his, his presence that gives life. God is reestablishing that, that presence that was there in the garden and that was removed. It's a reign. It's also a realm. The kingdom of God is a realm. God restoring all of creation from the fall. If God is interested in himself coming back into his creation and, and there's going to be a renewal. 
Like our, our creation is damaged and, and broken, and that, that includes like outside these walls, the, the creation itself, but it also includes human beings. That, that we're broken and sinful and something needs to be healed in us. And that brings me to the third aspect of what it means to, to be a kingdom, to be the kingdom of God, redemption. So a reign, a realm, a redemption. God is redeeming his fallen subjects. He is interested in purchasing us back from our sin. So if someone comes to you and says, what is the kingdom of God? If you can remember a reign, a realm, a redemption, that should help. It's a reign. It's God's reign. It's a It's a realm. God's restoring his creation, his presence in his creation. It's a redemption. God restoring his fallen subjects. I was trying to think of an illustration to kind of show these three points. And I thought uh, of the the only time in our our country's history in which our capital was occupied by enemy forces— uh, this is when, uh, in the War of 1812, when the British chased President Madison out of the White House and out of the Capitol. And in the War of 1812, the, the British came into the U.S. Uh, Capitol and they burned it. They burned the Capitol, and they burned the White House, <laughs> they burned a couple other government buildings, and the people were afraid, oh, they're going to burn down our houses too, See, for a brief, like, 24, 26 hours, it was just about a day, there ceased to be a a reign. (laughs) Madison ceased to reign in Washington, D.C. The realm was harmed. The realm was destroyed. Its buildings were burned. And the people needed to be redeemed from British tyranny. Now, in the real story, there was like a hurricane, and the British just retreated anyways. We didn't really do much to make them leave. But we have a God in our story, in our true story, that is pushing out the forces of evil, that is pushing out Satan's reign, and is restoring his realm, is bringing redemption to his subjects. That's what God is going to do through Abraham's descendants, who is the final descendant of Eve, who is that one true king. It's through Abraham's line that this king is going to come and bring redemption. So after this, Hebrew people, they go through 400 years of captivity in Egypt, and then God brings them to the promised land. And we have our next chapter, God provides a human king. Now, up to this point, God has been the people's king. God has ruled. God is the king. The people say, we we want our own king. And it's sad because they're rejecting God. But God knew this was going to happen. And all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, before they even entered the promised land, God made provisions for a king, how an earthly king was supposed to rule. These are some really interesting guidelines. I want you to pay attention. Deuteronomy 17, 16, and 17 say this. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So let's think about this for a moment. 
The king of Israel, this small refugee group of people who are on the run from Egypt, well, he's, he's not allowed to have a whole bunch of horses. Horses would be very helpful in defending this nation. He's not allowed to have a big army. You can't uh, return to Egypt. Egypt is a land that is oppressive, but it's also a land of safety. Well, we know what to expect there. We at least know who will be in charge. You are not to go back that way. You must not take many wives. Well, why did kings take wives? They took wives to form political alliances with the surrounding nations. You're not supposed to make many political alliances with the, the nations around you. You're supposed to trust me. You can't accumulate large amounts of silver and gold for yourself. You can't stockpile for a rainy day when the, the forces are evil of evil, like enemy armies are coming against you. You can't hire mercenaries or pay them off. Do you see how this king is supposed to be? This king is supposed to trust in God instead of armies. This king is supposed to trust in God instead of political alliances. This king is supposed to trust in God instead of their own wealth. It doesn't stop there. Right after this, it says this. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. So the, the king is supposed to take a copy of the law and hand copy it. All his days, meditating on God's word, writing it out, focusing on it, praying through it, so that he could lead the people justly, so that he could lead the people to obey God. I hope you, for a moment, grasp how different the kingdom of God is than the kingdoms of this world. What nation would say, we're going to follow this path? We're We're not going to have tanks and jets and warships and missiles because we're going to trust God. We're not going to form political alliances because we're going to trust God. We're not going to have Fort Knox because we're going to trust God. I doubt any of our political leaders are hand copying the Old Testament or writing it down. They might be. I would be very surprised. But it should make us think. Is our nation, sometimes we call it a Christian nation, does it really reflect what the Bible has to say about a king and how a king would rule? Now, in the Old Testament, you know, this is for the nation of Israel. That does not mean that we have to set up our country or any country has to set up their country like this. But this does reflect God's ideal king, This does reflect God's ideal ruler, the character. And so we should think about that. So chapter 5 tells us that God is going to provide a human king. Everything's looking good, right? If a king can just follow these commandments, this seems like every king. I mean, it's written right there. They should see it. They should do it. It's going to happen. Good things are going to happen. But the human kings fall short. You see a pattern that's developing 
Adam and Eve, our first, our first kings, they fell short. So they get a king, and the first king, his name is Saul, and for a time, things seem to go well, but very quickly, he begins to disobey God and do things his own way. Even Solomon, Solomon's often called the wisest king. If you've looked at Solomon's life, like he, he is a pretty good example of a, a wise king that loved the Lord, but even he gathers 12,000 horses. He marries 700 wives. That's 700 political alliances. And he stockpiles lots and lots of gold. And this is why I think we see in 1 Kings eleven six 6, it says, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Now, one thing that Solomon does get right is he builds the temple and the palace right next to each other. Now, the palace, he builds a little bit larger than the temple, so I think he might get that wrong, but he builds them right next to each other. And this actually reflects the kind of king God is interested in having lead his people, a king that understands that he does so with God. This isn't a king ruling without God. This is a king who's supposed to be dependent on God. That's why the temple and the palace are right next to each other. And Solomon does love the Lord. He, he builds this temple. He, he is a, a king, but he did evil. And there's actually a long line of times in the Old Testament, in the books of First and Second Kings, where it says of a king, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. First and Second Kings, it says that 15 times. See, all the kings, they either like love power or they love money, they love gold, they love horses, they love political alliances, they're just evil. But there's, there's a couple good ones, Hezekiah, Josiah. Josiah formed a political alliance with, uh, with Egypt. These people had their flaws. None of them was the one final true king that we need, that the nation of Israel needs. There's a pattern, a pattern of continually falling short. So there's a lesson for us in this. There's a lesson for us today. As we think about the kings that we place our trust in, Let's go back to that opening icebreaker question. Well, are you the king that you want to be? Is your rule just and fair and good? Or are you stockpiling lots and lots of gold? (laughs) Are you the king that trusts God in your life? Or are you doing things your way? If you could have a, a scientist rule your life, well, as you think about kind of king scientists, well, what have they done? They, they've done many good things, but they've also invented the atom bomb and Agent Orange, eugenics. This is what science has also done. How about a celebrity? You might be rich and famous, but you will probably also be unhappy and miserable. How about politicians? Like, they never lead us into unjust wars or, or sell their uh, vote for personal gain. Are you, who are you looking to? Are you looking to yourself? Are you looking to a certain political figure? Are you looking to our current president, President Trump, or Hillary, or Elon Musk? 
Mark Zuckerberg, Oprah, J.K. Rowling. Who are you looking to? Why are you looking to them? Who's your hero? Who's your king? See, all these kings, they're going to fall short. We need a good king. (laughs) We need the king that was promised in Genesis chapter 3 to come. We need that final descendant who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. And there's good news because in chapter 7, God promises a final king. God promises a pure and holy and good king is going to enter into our darkness, enter into our sin. He is going to restore the reign of God. He is going to restore this fallen realm, this fallen creation. He is going to redeem the the broken subjects, the peasants who so badly need a savior because they are living under the tyranny of the evil oppressor, the prince of this world. God promised this king in the Old Testament. I skipped over the most famous king in the Old Testament, King David. King David was called a man after God's own heart, and King David was flawed. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He wasn't allowed to build the temple because his hands were covered in blood. He was a a warrior. He was not perfect, but he was a man after God's own heart, and he meditated on God's law. He wrote most of the Psalms. He wrote a large chunk of the Bible. This was a a king closer to the Deuteronomy 17 king than we've ever had in the Old Testament. And God, when David offers to build, uh, when David offers to build God a temple, God gives David this promise. 2 Samuel 7, 16 Your house, this is God speaking to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This just like floors David. It just utterly astounds him that God is going to set up his throne. His throne somehow is going to be established forever. That means one of his descendants is going to be the king One of his descendants is going to be that final Genesis chapter 3 king who's going to come and crush the serpent. This is really good news. He's going to reign justly. He's going to redeem. He's going to restore the whole realm. In the Old Testament, there's this significant act that whenever... I don't know if it happened every time, but there are significant times like when Samuel appointed King Saul, he anointed him. So kings were called anointed by God, but so were prophets and so were priests. All three were called anointed by God. And this this word for anointed one is the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. The the Greek translation, the New Testament translation of Messiah or anointed one or king is is Christ, Christos. So whenever we say Christ, we're saying Messiah, we're saying anointed one, we're saying God's chosen king. We find in the Old Testament that there's going to come this king, he's going to be in the line of David, he's going to be the Messiah, but he's not going to be a normal king because he's actually going to be God. (laughs) 
God is king. Remember that? Chapter 1. God is king, and he's going to step down into our darkness and set up his throne, his kingdom here on earth. In the Old Testament, we find another prophecy from Daniel chapter 7. This one just like gives me chills. It just gets me so excited. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This king is a human. He's a son of man. And yet he's also God. He's worshipped. He has complete power. The king is coming. Do you want to meet the final king? Do you want to meet the good king? Do you want to meet the son of man? Do you want to meet the one who, who comes and the ancient of days gives him glory and power and he has dominion? Do you, want to, do you want to meet the king that can rule your life and, and, and rule your life justly and with mercy and with hope? And who, who is sometimes a hard king as he, as he disciplines us, but also a good king as he shows us love and grace. Do you want to meet this king? I want to meet him. I can't wait to tell you more about him next week. So come back. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the king. Thank you for the Messiah. Thank you for the Christ. Prepare our hearts for him. Prepare our hearts to be in submission to him. To bend the knee to, to Jesus. To bend every aspect of our life. Lord, we give you praise for Valerie's story. She is someone who experienced the redemption of the king. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room tonight who, who needs that redemption, who needs you, King Jesus, to come in and just set up shop to redeem and reign and to restore the realm. Would you do that? Do it in my life. Do it in all of our lives. It's in King Jesus' name I pray, amen.